Welcome to Nest Church, and thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope this word blesses you today. For more information, visit nestchurch.com. We hope to see you soon. And remember, you are All right, so before we pray for all of this and we pray for the word, I want to share something. Omar, how many of you were blessed by uh, last week's message in the book of James? I know I was, all right? Thank you, amen, amen. I was blessed by it. Um, and Omar truly uh, blessed us. But I want to share something because I haven't done this in a while. And um, it, it's good because it'll be up on, online and it's good for you to, who's here per, uh, in person. Um, Omar... Um, and the support with his wife they felt this calling on their lives that God's called them for more and we've placed um, Omar in this um, in this journey that he's on now as he's feel God's calling him and we're we started this process of training maybe another church will call it an internship slash training whatever it is but Omar is walking into the pastoral calling amen praise God And you know, there's a lot of people that I've had conversations with, like, I feel like I'm called to be a pastor. And when they tell me that, your insights cringe. And you're like, I get you feel that, but is that what God's calling you to? Because a lot of people may feel things, but just because you feel something, it doesn't mean that God's calling you to it. The reality is, as Christians, we should have um, a certain way of living, amen? Uh, We should have a rule about us reverence about us the Bible says to be holy as he is holy and that's for sure but but the truth is there's a calling for everyone and as Omar is stepping up to this calling there's also qualifications that he's got to meet if he wants to fulfill the office of a pastor and in Titus in the book of Titus and in first Timothy as well in chapter 3 and all throughout scripture it speaks about the qualifications some of bishops and overseers and of deacons, but of those who are going to lead the flock. And, and what's beautiful about these scriptures is that these qualifications have been around for over 2,000 years. It's nothing new. It's the word of God, and it's still perfect and true still today in 2022. And we know that Christ is the perfect fulfillment of all this, but still as pastors, Omar is called to live above reproach. Amen? Yeah. I want to go over this listen to this scripture real quick before he comes to preach it says this this is a trust this is saying is this saying is trustworthy i'm reading from first timothy three if anyone aspires the office of overseer he desires a noble task he's gonna oversee the flock he's gonna pastor the flock you must be above reproach the husband of one wife you must be sober-minded self-controlled respectable hospitable you must be able to teach You must not be a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. You must manage your own household well with dignity, keeping children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace or into a snare of the devil above reproach 
So she, those are some of the qualifications. A pastor must be devoted to his wife. I think in this church we've seen that Omar is devoted to Jessica. To one woman. And the pastor's marriage illustrates Christ's love for the church. And he's to do that. A pastor's children must be submissive. And we're praying that. And we're praying blessing over their marriage and over, over their womb. And that God will bless them. But their household has to be in order. If a man does not know how to manage his family... How is he going to take care of God's church? The church would see that. Your home is a mess. So you think you're going to have authority in the house of God? Go have authority at home first. And that's the reality that we're called to live in. A pastor is to be a faithful steward according to Titus chapter 1. A faithful steward. A functional individual and a steward, a manager of God's resources that he would manage the flock of Christ well, that he would take on responsibility, not necessarily ownership, but manage it well for the Lord. A pastor must be humble, not arrogant. And I'm hoping that you see some of these qualifications in Omar because you will decide whether this house will make him a pastor among this house. Amen? You will say yes. One day you will call on him and say yes, Pastor Omar, because he's earned that and because... He's met these qualifications. Humble, not arrogant. Demonstrating the gospel. He admits when he's wrong. And he assumes responsibilities and to restore relationships and so forth. He must be gentle. A pastor must not be quick-tempered. No man will be any use for the kingdom which is quick-tempered. Quick-tempered people don't do well long-term for the kingdom of heaven. You need to be gentle. And hopefully you've seen that. A pastor must be sober must not be a drunkard not good if you're walking around and you see him stumbling along the streets or along his social media not a drunkard not overindulging in alcohol that his behavior would be well conducted before others be responsible must be peaceful the pastor must not be violent all of this is found in Titus 1 in 1 Timothy chapter 3 you must not inflict violence through your words. You must be a peacemaker and try to bring the community into peace. A lot of my calling is to always blow off fires. The majority of a pastor is to make sure that the forest does not burn. There's always trees burning in the house of God. And most of what we do is, let's get these two trees to get along again and allow them to move according to the way the wind blows. It's not going to work if they catch on fire. So that's what we do a lot of times. If you've been in this house a long time, you've been in water. <laughs> and hopefully Omar has shown that. He's not one that brings problems, but helps solve problems. Amen? A pastor must have financial integrity, not greedy for gain. According to scripture, to be upright in his financial dealings, not accused of all these things that we hear of but that he would honor the Lord honor the kingdom of God with financial dealings a pastor must be hospitable if you've ever been to Omar and Jessica's house they are they're hospitable their home is to be open for others to enjoy his pastor's home is not a heaven on earth but it's a place of ministry always it's always a place of ministry a pastor must be a lover of good, according to Titus 1.8. Genuinely loves what is good. 
He does not just think he should love it, but he desires what is good. Doesn't run to what is bad or evil. We said this, self-controlled. Self-control is a characterization of every area of a pastor's life. Self-controlled. And I love how one pastor was putting in everything that you do, from your diet, to your time, to your exercise, to your mouth, how you speak, relationships, sex, money, everything. You should be self-controlled in all that you do. A pastor must be upright. He has integrity in his relationships and how he treats others. A pastor must be holy. A lot of this are like, this is for me too. Amen. I can say a Christian should be. His life is to be devoted wholeheartedly to Jesus. Externally, but internally when no one sees him. You must be able to teach. I'm going to read this. All of the other qualifications are character qualities. This is the only ability-based requirement. He's to be able to teach sound doctrine. Not just be able to communicate in an excellent manner. A lot of people do that and yet their doctrine's off. You must have sound doctrine. If you want to do it well and you want to be charismatic with it, I'm as charismatic as they come, but you better be sound doctrine. I'm good with that. His teaching can be to one or two, to 20, to 100, or to 1,000. I love this. Most of the churches in Crete were house churches. The elders were to defend the faith once delivered to the saints against the numerous false teachers that arise. And that is what a pastor should do, be able to teach the church. And I think last week he did a well job, and I believe in a few minutes he's going to continue to do a good job in teaching sound doctrine. Amen? And a pastor must be spiritually mature. Positions of authority without spiritual maturity lead to the trap of pride. When pride grows in a man, sin abounds. And Omar is called to live mature spiritually. A pastor must be respectable. It does not mean that everyone must like him because we know that's not going to happen. Or even appreciate him. It means that there is no credible witness to an ongoing sinful behavior. His life is lived in a respectable manner. Amen? And last but not least, 1 Peter 5.3 teaches that a pastor must be, as we look at all these things, we could sum it up to this, he must be an example to the flock. As elders, as leaders, we're examples. And I'll read exactly how it says it here. Our examples of biblical expression, sexually, time managing, marriage, parenting, worship, relationships, and any other way. A pastor should be someone that sons could pattern their lives after and the kind of man your daughter would want to marry. A pastor should be a man of God. And this is what we're praying for, that Omar will continue to meet these qualifications and that Omar would never cease from saying, yes, Lord, here I am. That Jessica would never cease from saying, yes, Lord, here I am. And that together in our nest and even outside, whatever the future may hold, that God will do great things over this Martinez family. So with no further ado, I want to introduce a future pastor of Nest Church, which we will ordain here one day, and we will have a special service, and I will make all our leaders that day wear a suit, and we'll pray for Omar with suits on as we ordain him. Let's give it up and welcome Omar as he brings the word of God. Amen. What do I even say after that? <laughs> wow.
You know, going off what Pastor Rigo said, man, it's, I have never felt qualified to even stand up here before anybody and hold this microphone. If you would have asked me this five years ago, that I would be standing on a platform like this preaching to somebody, I said, there is no way that is me. I am the most introverted person that you will ever meet. I don't feel qualified to be here. And then maybe there's a saying that you have heard before. It says that God doesn't call the qualified, but he qualifies the call. And that's what I rest on. I rest on the qualification from the Lord. Not on my own qualification, not on my intellect, not on my, I don't rely on me. I have to rely on the power of God. To even be standing here, I have to rely on the power of the Lord. So I flow with it and I ride with it. That's it. Hallelujah. God is good. And all the time. You guys remember last week when we went over that of God being good. I asked you in your valley, is God good? And what did you respond? All the time. All the time. In your storm, God is good. All the time? All the time. In the circumstances that you face, God is good. All the, I want to hear it all the time. I'm waiting for one. In your circumstances, God is good. And all the time. Hallelujah. Amen. We're continuing our study today through the book of James. We're coming into chapter 2. Does anybody in here remember what the name of the series is that we're on? Jesus in the mist. Yes, hallelujah. We've learned so many good things through this book. Uh, man, and really the writings of James has, has edified my life as I hope that it has edified your life. There's just so many good things and, and doctrinal stuff that James goes over to, to the church of the time and the life of a believer that I believe is so essential for our walk. Does anybody remember anything? What stood out to you last week in this preaching? Just scream something out if you remember. Don't be deceived. Yeah, that's good. Absolutely. James speaks a lot on not being deceived. How about this? Let's do a quick recap of what we learned last week. We learned, if maybe if you remember this, every good gift comes from above. All of the blessings and provisions in the life of a believer come from the Father. And we see that in verse 17, where he says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Hallelujah. James then speaks on the anger of man. You guys remember, we, I went extensively on, on anger. And he says in verse 19, be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Amen. Let's be slow to anger, church. And then probably my favorite part of the verses that we went over last week was found in verse 22. We learn to be doers of the word. He says it here in verse 22, be doers of the word and not hearers, only deceiving yourselves. And I hope that this portion of the study really tugged at your heart because it tugged at mine. That we take action, not that we just listen and gain knowledge, but that we act upon the information in which we have learned. And I believe we closed off last week um, in one of the verses was verse 27. It was religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, is to visit orphans and widows in their time of affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. It's, it's beautiful that we just prayed over Sister Betsy here, because she's going on a mission trip that has to deal with 
children and, and orphans and broken families. And, and I believe I said it last week, the statistics, I, I want to make sure I get them right. I believe that there's 500,000 kids in the foster system here in the United States. And there's 380,000 churches in the United States. And I don't know how this is going to work, but if every church were to take one and a half children, I don't know how the half would work, but we'll figure that out. If we take one and a half children, the foster system will be obliterated. There will be no more foster system in this country. Just something to think about. Uh, Pastor Rigo said, we don't know if you're called to follow, whatever it is. Just think about that stat. If every church were to take one, no more foster kids. Amen? Oh, man, we give the Lord praise and glory for that. So, so much great information that we, chap- we covered in chapter 1, and now we've come to chapter 2. So we'll be going over verses 1 through 26, and I'll put a disclaimer here. I don't know if we're going to get through the whole thing, but it's okay. If we don't get through it all, it'll continue on to the next preaching as we're entering in the series of Jesus in the Mist. So if you could turn with me to James chapter 2, we're going to start... Um, at verse 1, and I'm going to read through it. That way the word is stirring in our hearts and it's stirring in our minds. So James starts chapter 2 with, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, You sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, You stand over there, sit down on my feet. Have you not then made a distinction amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Verse 5, he says, listen, my beloved brothers, has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of a kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? Verse 6, but you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. Verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment without mercy to one who has shown no mercy, mercy triumphs over judgment. Verse 14, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving to them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also by faith, if it does not have works, it is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe in shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac to the altar? You see, the faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. Verse 23. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messenger and sent them out by another way? 
And the last verse 26. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Amen. 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 Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this word, Lord. We thank you for the writings of, of our brother James, Lord. I just pray, Father God, Lord, that every single opinion of mine is taken out. And that truth of your scripture is revealed here today by the power of the Holy Spirit. So we thank you for this word, Lord, because this word is to bring growth, Lord, to edify our lives, Father God. So we thank you. We give you the greatest honor and the greatest praise in here today. And God's people say yes and. Amen. amen. So it's, it's, it's a lot. Chapter 2 is a lot. Um, if we get through it, amen. If we don't, it's okay, amen. <laughs> so, so much great information to go over this morning. Uh, let me start by saying this, that James is addressing this letter to the church. And anytime he starts with my brothers, he's speaking to those in the body of Christ. But maybe we could take it even a step further. How about we, we apply this to everyone? Not just to those who are in the body of Christ, but to every person you know. You can't go wrong with what James is speaking here. So let's get into it. Verse number one in chapter two. My brothers, show no partiality. Another word for partiality, just so you know, it's favoritism. So show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down on my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith? And heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him. This is good stuff to dive into here this morning. So much to cover. James really covers a great deal in these verses that just really speaks to the heart of the church. So, so look at the beginning. Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And in the beginning, in the beginning verses we see the word partiality which I told you is another word for favoritism. And this word is found several times throughout scriptures on how God shows no partiality, that, that he's a good judge, he's a good father, and, and God does not play favorites. He doesn't play favorites. You see it actually in all parts of the world, within jobs, within schools, within family, within friends, and yes, even within churches. We see favoritism. We see it everywhere. We've just broken off into groups, or, or some people might call it cliques, Right? Maybe you've experienced clicks at your workplace. You've experienced clicks amongst your friends. But we show favoritism to some. And maybe we do this because we share the same ideas. We have the same hobbies. We have the same standards. Right? And we like to be around people that are like us. That's just the bottom line. We, like, we share the same time with people that are like us. So when an outsider comes in... We're kind of hesitant, you know, we don't really know them, and then we favor others over them. We don't put them first, and maybe it's because, man, they're just not like me. And I hate to say it, but this is something that we all have. All of us have it. We all have favorites. We got favorite basketball teams. We got favorite singers. We got favorite restaurants to go to. We got favorite places to visit. We hold certain things to be better than others. And it's okay. It's okay to play favorites in things like that. 
I, I'm not a big fan of, okay, so there's a Cuban dish, and some of you guys are going to look at me like, how can you not like that? I don't like a jero con pollo a la chorrera. You know what that is? The one that is like super, it's like a soup. It's too soupy for me, and the chicken, and the rice. That, okay, that does not sit well with me. So that's not my favorite dish. One of my favorite Cuban dishes is actually vitel a la milanesa. You guys know which one that is? I love vitel a la milanesa. That's one of my favorite Cuban dishes. So I play favorites with certain foods. When we all do this, but sometimes our favorite system kind of goes beyond that. It goes beyond that because there might be people in here that like the Yankees over the Marlins. So that's where things get very serious. Okay? These things get serious when you start liking opposing it. Okay, no, that's, that's, I'm, I'm just joking there. But yeah, our favoritism goes beyond that sometimes. And you guys know what I'm talking about? There's just that part of the family where mm, it's just difficult to be around this family member. I'd much rather hang with the other side of the family. It's just, I, I love them, but they're not my favorite people. They're, they're not the, the best people to be around. There's a reason why you only see them once a year. They're just not the favorite people to be around. Maybe they annoy you. Maybe they bother you. Maybe they just live totally different lives than you. And you just don't enjoy being around them. I have family like that. If I could be honest. I love them very much. Man, I just don't. It's just difficult. You know, Thanksgiving comes around and I want to sit at the end of the, end of the table. I really don't want But we're playing favorites. I'm playing favorites in the body of Christ. It's not to play favorites. That's what James is talking about here, right? And then there's brothers and sisters in Christ where favoritism is shown. Yeah, you know, it's my church family, but man, it's hard for me to hang out with Susie. I'd much rather go out to lunch with Donna. And I chose those names because I don't know anybody in here named Susie or Donna, but if that is you, please don't take offense. So just in case there's a Susie or a Donna in here, there's no, no offense, please. And ultimately, I'm not even talking about Nest Church, so we could take it a step further. I'm not talking about you guys here today, okay? So James, as I told you earlier, James is not addressing this letter to politicians at the time. He's not addressing it to unbelievers. He's talking about the church. But let's take it a step further. Let's take it outside the church and evaluate ourselves there. So there's no place for favoritism amongst us. We're not to hold anybody higher than another. If you are in Christ, then you are not to show favoritism towards people, especially those of the faith. We know this. We should know this, that there is God and then there's people. There's no different levels of people, right? We're all just people. We're all the same. We all believe the same color. There's God and there's man. But at times we tend to elevate man to a certain level. Yeah, maybe it's because of their possessions, maybe it's because of their fame, because of the titles that they hold. But we elevate them for one reason or another. Let me ask you guys a question. If Michael Jordan were to walk in here today, all eyes would be on him. Would he get a VIP seat right up here? Would you be so infatuated with him being here that, man, we don't even pay attention to the word? Would everything of you just be focused on him? I see you guys looking back. Jordan's not here, is he? Oh, okay. I, okay. Just in case, Mike, big fan. <laughs> but man, really think about it. If he was here, would, would we even focus on the word being preached? Right? Because our gathering, the purpose of our gathering is to have our eyes fixed on Christ. But this is what James is saying, man, man, that we get struck sometimes with the outward appearance and accomplishments of man that we elevate them to another level. Look at verse 3. 
And if you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down on my feet. And this is the unfortunate reality, right? That, that there are people that wherever they go, they get special treatment. And maybe it's because of their status, maybe it's because of money, because of their fame, but they get treated differently. And not only are they treated differently, but many people expect special treatment. And there's a flip side to this. And the flip side is that there's also people that wherever they go, they're rejected by the world. And James is saying that the church is not to reject those who are poor. And at times, we judge by the outward appearance when God has called those who are poor to be rich in the faith and heirs of a kingdom. He says it here in verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers, has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name of which you were called? God has chosen those who are rejected by the world to be his children. And James is saying, wait a minute, now the church is rejecting them too? Absolutely not. We dishonor the poor man, but we elevate the rich? The same people who oppress us, the ones who take us to court, the ones who are blasphemers, the ones who are against God. And why? Why are we elevating such people to such a degree? This is so cool. I don't know if you guys know who Francis Chan is. Francis Chan is an amazing, amazing preacher. So he gave this analogy. And Francis Chan said this. He goes, imagine if Lance Armstrong came into our church. How many Tour of Francis has he won? I'm not sure. I don't really follow him too much. Uh, but think about it. How many Tour de Francis has he won? And he sits next to you. Man, Lance is here. What am I going to say to Lance? What questions do I ask him? Man, can I get his autograph? Can I get a picture with him? I want to tell all my friends that, that I met him. I want to post this picture online because, man, I want the world to know that I met Lance. But never mind this, that he's a professing atheist. He stands against everything that you believe, and yet we elevate him to another standard. But he does ride bike very well. He rides bike very good, but yet he's elevated to a level where man just looks at him and is in, wow, he's the star star. Man, this is Lance Armstrong, and James is here talking about this. He's saying, don't elevate them. I want, before I even say what I'm going to say, now, I want you to know this does not apply to everybody. Okay, but we know that rich people have a very hard time being strong in faith. I'm not talking about every rich person. But a lot of rich people have a hard time being strong in faith. Now, I'm not saying everyone, but there are some wealthy people that have a strong presence of God in their life. But not a lot. And maybe it's because they rely on materialistic things of the world to fill them uh, maybe that's why they're always hungry for things because they just want more, and, but they chase things that will perish. And they find no need for God because they've obtained everything on their own. And we see this actually with the rich young ruler. He asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he walked away defeated when Jesus told the man, sell everything you have, give it to the poor and come follow me. And Jesus speaks clearly uh, on the riches of this world. He says it's easier for a camel to enter through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. But look what Jesus says about the poor. In Matthew 5, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
You know, some of you, I'm sure, have been to third world countries and maybe you've witnessed people that have nothing, yet they're full of joy and thanksgiving. Because you see, in the nothing that they have, they have found everything in Jesus. Blessed is the poor in spirit, and we forget, and we put people in these different classes, and we elevate some, and we reject others. Wouldn't it be awesome if we could see the way that God actually views us? How he would say, yes, this person is after my heart, but these over here, not so much. You see, because God, he doesn't see wealth. He sees the heart of man. That's what he's looking at. He's looking at the heart. He's not looking at the materialistic things that we have. He's looking at our hearts. So James says, don't show favoritism towards people. If we are all one in Christ, then the love goes to all. MJ walks in here. He's not elevated, but we're showing love. Lance Armstrong, professing atheist. Man, come to the foot of the cross. You came to the right place today, Lance. Let's show you the love of Christ. Don't elevate. Don't elevate, but show love to everyone. Amen? All right, let's go to verse 8. If you really fulfill the law, I'm sorry, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbors as yourself. You're doing well. In verse 9 he says, but if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. James says it, if you're loving your neighbor as yourself, good. You're doing very good. And Jesus says the same thing in Mark 12, 31. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other greater commandment than these. You are doing good. Keep on. You're doing well. Keep that up. That is the heart of Christ. But if the favoritism creeps in, man, we're committing sin. Therefore, we're lawbreakers. You see how something so small that we don't even think about can be sin in the sight of God? It all goes back to the intention of the heart. And God sees it and God knows it. And then we look at verse 10. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point is guilty of it all. The law was considered an independent whole. Breaking any law meant breaking the whole law. I'm the first one here to say, man, that we've all fallen short of God's glory. Right, and we see in Scripture what Paul says, that he is the chief of sinners. Verse 11, for he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but you do murder... You have become the transgressor. So listen, I might not be a murderer, but if I'm an adulterer, if I'm a liar, if I'm a thief, I'm guilty of murder. How eye-opening is that? You know, it's scripture like this that really shows how much in need we are of a Savior. And we're all going to stand before God to give an account, and he's going to start running that tape. And we're going to need mercy at that point. And thank the Lord that he's full and rich in mercy. And don't raise your hands here, but, but let's just see. I mean, and I'll, my, race, my hand will be raised the entire time. Have you honored your father and your mother? I'm going to need a lot of mercy there. How many lies have you told? Big mercy checkbox, Lord. How, have you ever stolen everything, even if it's that nickel from grandma's bag? I need mercy, God. I'm going to need the mercy. Have you ever looked with someone at someone with lustful intentions? Because Jesus says if you look with lustful intentions, then you have committed adultery with them in your heart. I need mercy, Lord. I'll stand before my wife. I've had conversations with my wife about this all the time. I need mercy. I need mercy. 
So we see James is saying, if you broke one, you're guilty of them all. And we could go down the entire list and, and quickly see, man, that we're in trouble. We're in trouble. It, it puts anything good that you think that you have in submission to Jesus. Because he is the goodness. And good news, God's mercies are new every day for those who are in Christ Jesus. And this is the heart of the gospel, man, that we have sinned, but Jesus paid for every single sin. Sin, past, present, and future. And I love Romans 5.8. I, I, I say this scripture often. It says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He paid it all. His last words on the cross were, it is finished. The debt has been paid. Church, you have been set free because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Amen. Give the Lord the greatest praise for that. Man, how beautiful, how beautiful it is that he came. He was the propitiation. He stood in our place. Christ filled the gap. He filled the gap. This is something about the gospel, man. I, I, just, I, I love preaching the gospel. You guys should love preaching the gospel. I said it last time, last Sunday, this is the message that we need to proclaim to the world. You're sitting here today because somebody told you the gospel one day. And it transformed your heart. It transformed your mind. It transformed everything about you. It's that one message. It wasn't a message of a man. Let me show you what Jesus can do to change your entire life. It's, it's, look what he's going to do here. And he's going to play. That's not, that's not what transformed you. What transformed you was Christ and Christ crucified. Man, what a beautiful thing. Continue living in that. Let's go to verse 12. So speak and so act as... Those who are to be judged under the law of liberty, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. But mercy triumphs over judgment. James is saying it. We should speak and act every day as though we will be judged for every word spoken and in everything we do. And I truly believe, church, that if we did this, our lives might be a little bit different. Not because of fear of judgment, but because God is good and rich in his mercy. Look at verse 13, for judgment without mercy to one who has shown no mercy, mercy triumphs over judgment. So those who have judged and have shown no mercy to others, by the same accord, when it's our turn to be judged, no mercy will be shown to us. And this is what I'm saying. This is not so much as a fear tactic from the Lord, but it's do we really understand the mercy that we've been given and shown? Do we really understand the gospel? Do we really see that in all of our mistakes, that in all of our judgments, in all of our sins, that we're really sick, that we're really messed up, and in the midst of all of that, God didn't turn his face. He didn't say, no, I don't want them. He didn't say, no, they're too sinful. He didn't say, no, they're too far gone. No, they're too dirty. He says, no, come, I want you to be sons and daughters. Great mercy has been shown to us through Christ church. So that's what James is saying. Don't forget the mercy that has been shown to you by the cross of Jesus Christ. Mercy is over judgment. Show great mercy to others as it has been shown to you. Let's go to verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? This is a very important part of chapter 2. Can that faith save him? If a brother or a sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and if one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, without giving them the things that they need for the body, what good is that? 
So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, it is dead. And this is really going back to what James was saying in chapter 1 of being not just a hearer, but a doer of the word. Will your faith alone without your works save you or are you deceived? James said it all through chapter 1. He's saying that what good is it to profess Jesus but not show the heart of Jesus? If someone is in need of something, food, clothing, or just something basic and essential, and you just pass by them and tell them, hey, don't worry. I know you're hungry, but I'm going to be praying for you. What good is that? Act upon the faith that you believe in. Look at verse 17. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, it is dead. It's no good just to speak on your faith, but not act on it. It's dead. It's worthless. It has no value. James believes what we do is the result of what we believe. So faith results in action. And this part is a little bit tricky to to speak on and digest and, and dissect. So are you saved alone by faith or must you also produce works to be saved? Which one is it? You know, a lot of people had problems with this part of Scripture. Martin Luther back in the 1500s has a very big problem with this part of Scripture. Because is James saying that you are saved by works? Is he saying what you do here is what is going to save you? Because that's what it kind of sounds like when you read this part of passage. So I want to break this down for you because this is very important to understand. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, the first part of verse 8 says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith. Faith is a saving mechanism. It is by your belief that salvation is given. And this is not, this is the second part of verse 8. It's not by your own doing, it is the gift of God. Verse 9, not a result of works so that no man may boast. So we aren't saved by the good things that we do. The Bible actually says that our works apart from our faith are as filthy rags before the Lord. So many people in this world do great things for humanity. All right, they serve others well, they care for the sick, they care for the poor, but yet they do not profess Jesus. Great works, but no faith. Your works alone will not save you. This is my personal theological belief. And if we could have conversation on this afterwards, if you like. You're not saved by faith plus works. Because if you, were, if you needed work, if you needed to do X amount of good things to get to heaven, then there will be no need for the cross of Christ. You just be good, and then you make it, and then you're your own Savior. But the gospel says otherwise. The gospel says that we're not good enough, but Jesus was good for us. Now because of that, go and do good. Go and do good. Look at verse 10 of Ephesians. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And this verse really sums it all up. Pay close attention to this. You may want to write this statement down. A true saving faith will produce good works in you. If you have the heart of Christ, then you will have the heart to do good things for others. In other words, salvation is the root and works is the fruit. The producing of works will overflow by the genuine faith of a true believer. That's a beautiful thing. And it's two very separate things. Because 
What distinguishes, distinguishes Christianity from every other religion in the world is that we have a Savior that came and was good for us. And we do good things because of the mercy, grace, and love that Jesus has shown us. As a part to every other religion in the world that says, no, you better do good things. And if you don't do enough good things, be careful because you, not might, you might not make it. Man, what a crazy way to live. I hope I did enough good things, Lord, to make it into your presence. Man, but Christ came and he abolished that. He says, I was good for you. Now because you love me and I love you, you go out, you love him, you love her, you love others, you do good things in my name. That's what salvation with works looks like. Let's go to verse 18. But some will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Verse 19, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons tremble and believe. Another translation say the demons the demons believe and they tremble. It's like someone saying, yeah, 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 listen, you do nice things, but show me your faith. Show me how much scripture you know. Show me how much doctrine you have studied. Show me your seminary degrees. How many hours have you given to the church? How many people have you prayed for? How many tithes have you given? And man, this is simple. James is saying, by me serving and loving people well, you will see the Christ in me. You'll see my faith. Yes, all those other things might be good, but they're useless if they are not acted upon. Look at 19. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. What sets the demons apart? They also believe, but they don't act. They aren't doers of the word. They believe and they tremble. Your faith alone is useless if we're not acting upon it. We have to act upon the faith. Upon the faith. But next church, you are set apart. We understand this, right? We are set apart because we act upon our faith. We just don't profess it. We show it. We show it because we're doers of the word. Worship team, you can start making your way up. I'm, I'm about to wrap up here. You know, there's a term that's called, I don't know if you've ever heard of this, it's called easy believism. It's something very interesting, actually. If you have a chance, you should look this up. Easy believism. And I credit this to a pastor from Calvary Chapel in Ontario. This is where I heard it from. I mean, it really stems from the word believe. And many don't understand what the word believe actually means. Most people think that it essentially means just to believe that something exists. We see in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. And look how easy it is. We just believe. And you could be there and witnessing to someone and telling them about faith and repentance. And they say, yeah, 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 yeah. I understand that. I believe in Jesus, you know. I believe that he existed. He came along and, and you know, I know there was a guy named, G, maybe Jesus Sanchez. I don't know. I believe there was a guy named Jesus. That's not the meaning of real believing. Look what A.W. Tozer says. Faith now means no more than passive moral. I don't know how to pronounce that word. Acquiescence. In the word of God and the cross of Jesus Christ. To exercise faith, we have only to rest on one knee and nod our heads in agreement with the instruction of a personal worker intent upon saving our souls. 
And Tozer spoke about this 50 or 60 years ago. Yeah, just nod your head in agreement that he existed. That's not biblical faith. It goes much deeper than that. You may know about God, but does he know you? I know the president of the United States, but if I knock on the door of the White House and don't let me in, he's going to say, I don't know you. I don't know this man. It goes a lot deeper. Remember what James said earlier, that even the demons believe they acknowledge the existence of God. Believing in Jesus means this, to put your full faith and trust in him. That you have died to yourself and you follow him now. That you believe in his death. You believe in his burial. You believe in his resurrection. You believe that by his shed blood, your sins are washed. That he was the propitiation. That he stood in the gap. That you have been transformed. You have been given a new heart with new desires. And now because of that church, we pick up our cross and we follow him every day for the cause of Christ. Look what Tozer says that a true faith is. True faith is not passive, but it is active. It requires that we meet certain conditions, that we allow the teachings of Christ to dominate our total lives. From the moment we believe, the man of saving faith must be willing to be different from others. The effort to enjoy the benefits of redemption while enmeshed in the world's futile. There is no easy believism here. There is no easy believism here. Amen. I'm going to stop here, man. I just, I feel a sense of the spirit here. If you guys could stand with me. There's so much great information here. We missed about six, seven verses, but it's okay. We'll continue it next time. And I know that words like this are are difficult sometimes, church. I know that. I know that they're convicting because as I went through the book of James, I was extremely convicted. You know, the Bible says to examine yourself. So I began to examine myself. Am I really living the words that James is saying? Am I really being a doer of the word, not just a hearer of the word? Is my heart filled with favoritism? Am I judging others because of the outward appearance? Am I living like that? Is my heart really following Jesus the way that it needs to follow Christ? And I challenge you to examine yourself. Examine yourself. In the middle of this word, although yes, that it may be convicting, everything really comes back to one thing. It comes back to this, that if you are in Christ, church, know that God loves you. That he has shown great mercy towards you. That he's the same God yesterday, today, and forevermore. That through the trial that you face, God is there. Through the tribulation that you are walking into, God is there. Do you guys know the scripture that says that God is for you? He's not against you. Know that church that he is for you. So I want you to be encouraged. Because although writings like this of what James says, it tugs at the heart. Which is a good thing because that shows that the Holy Spirit is moving within your heart and within your mind. That's what the word is meant to do. 
It's meant to tug at you. That's what it wants to do, to tug at your spirit. Why? Because it's transforming you more to the image of Jesus and less of the image of the world. That's what the word does. And that's what we're called to be. We're called to be transformed, new creations in Christ Jesus. And for those of you in here today that have repented and put your faith in Christ and in Christ alone, that Jesus lives within you. That's the walk. This is the walk. James is saying, walk by these words. Be doers of the word. Show me your faith by your actions. Show me your faith by your actions. And I preach this word to myself 100%. 100%. Because that's what I want to be a man of action, not just a man of words. Many people speak well. But their actions don't reflect on what they speak. I could stand up here today in front of you and talk about Jesus, talk about all these things, but if the Holy Spirit doesn't dwell within me, then all I have given you is a motivational speech. That's all I've given you. So often, I encourage you to do this often, is to examine your heart. As Pastor Regal was saying earlier, sometimes we become distant from the Lord and things begin to creep up into our lives and we just start to justify things a little bit more. Exactly what Pastor said. Maybe I should watch more of a little bit of this. I could take another sip of that. I could engage in another conversation that I have no business in engaging. I start treating people a little bit more harsh. I I start snapping at my kids just a little bit more. Examine your heart. Examine yourself. Man, and come back. Because God's mercies are new every day. His mercies are there and they're waiting. And the Father has his arms wide open saying, Come, taste and see that I am good. Come and drink from wells of living water so that you may never thirst again. That's what he is saying. Thank you, Lord, for living water. Living water that our wells may never run dry, church. That we continue to pursue him midst of the craziness of the world that we continue to pursue the heart of Christ hallelujah Lord God Lord we just thank you Lord we thank you for the writings of brother James Lord God Lord that you are here Lord to transform us as brother James write that mercy triumphs over judgment and your mercy Lord God upon us is new every single day Lord Jesus so we thank you for that because I know Lord what you have taken me out of I know Lord God what you have delivered me from I know the things that I have done I know the anxieties that I have faced I know the depressions and the dark holes that I have gone into before in my life I know the words that I have spoken over other people at times in my life. And yet, Lord, you have chosen to call me son. What a great honor. And what a great calling. And because of that calling, because of that honor, Lord Jesus, I choose to pick up my cross daily and to follow you.
that I strip away everything from the flesh. Lord God, and I pursue what is righteous, what is holy, and what is pure. So I thank you for all of my brothers and sisters in here today, Father God. Lord, that these are words written here today by James that are transforming to the heart. Transforming to the minds of man, to the minds of your people in here today. So Lord God, I thank you, Lord. We give you the greatest praise, the greatest honor, and all of the glory in here today. And God's people say yes and. Give the Lord the greatest praise. Amen.